So um, we're in that, that season right now uh, with American television sports. Some big games are coming up. We've got a Super Bowl coming up. There are championship games happening in, in all, all over. Um, I, I'm not a big Super Bowl fan. I, I know that makes me a weird American. Um, many of you are. That's fine. <laughs> One of the things that I love about, however, you know, watching television sports, whether it's a big championship game or just a regular season game, I love the interviews that happen after the game. It's, it's kind of a tradition in American sports, uh, that, that, that post-game interview. Now, I don't actually enjoy the interviews with the winners. The, the interviews with the winners are kind of boring. I mean, what are you going to say? Yeah, we won. Yeah, we know that. We know you won. We won because we're better. I don't really want to hear that. You know, especially if I was rooting for the losing team. No, I, I don't really enjoy the interviews with the winners. What I really enjoy are the interviews with the losers. What are they going to say? Are they going to take responsibility for the loss? Are they going to kind of shift blame onto the referees, onto the coaching, onto some other teammate? This is why I like the interview with the losers, you really take the measure of a competitor when they lose. You you find out what their character is really like. And and it's not just sports, right? Does does the losing politician take, take responsibility for losing or do they claim it was stolen? It wasn't my fault. It's not just politics. There, there are lots of like reality TV shows out there, and the contestants typically lose. You know, that's why we come back week after week to see who, who's who's going to remain on the island or, or or stay in the the hunt to be the one that's picked by the bachelor or bachelorette or whatever it is that's going on there. Um, when they're interviewed after after they lost, do 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 they do they accept their defeat graciously or are they petulant? you really find out what's inside a person when they lose. There's there's not a parent in this room who hasn't at least tried to teach their kids that character shows up in defeat. Now, I start there, even though that's not where we're going to spend most of our time. I start there because actually taking responsibility for a loss is a lot easier to admire in others than to practice ourselves. I mean, haven't we all been tempted to shift the blame? I think that was probably the thing that I heard most often from my own wife in the early days of marriage, that I was constantly shifting the blame. It was always her fault. And you know what? She was right. That's what I was doing. We, we are constantly wanting to point the finger at somebody or something else when things don't go the way we want. And the higher the stakes, the more likely we are to look for someone else to blame. 
So what about the highest stakes of all? If you don't make it to heaven, whose fault will it be? If you don't make it to heaven, who's to blame? This winter, we're studying the book of James. It's written by the half-brother of Jesus, the leader of the church in Jerusalem around 48 AD, and he's writing to Christians that have been scattered across the Middle East because of persecution. And these early Christians are all of a sudden finding, like, like suddenly, it's really hard to follow Jesus. And at least some of them are looking around and wanting to know, like, who can I blame for this? I wonder if you can relate to these early Christians. You know, we live in a culture in which faith in Jesus Christ is not rewarded. More likely, it's penalized. And when we, when we experience that penalty, I mean, do you, do you ever find yourself thinking, can, can God really blame me for, for failing the various tests of faith that come along in a culture like this? It's so hard to follow Jesus when no one and nothing is really encouraging you to do so. If you've ever felt that way, if you've, if you've ever found yourself thinking, man, this, this life is just too hard, and, and you're tempted to blame someone or something, maybe even God himself, I want you to know that James has some encouragement for you this morning. Not only encouragement, but ultimately encouragement. So turn with me, if you would, to James chapter 1, verse 12. I have no idea what page that's on. I usually tell you. Let's look. Uh, page 1071. 1071. So if you're using one of the Bibles that we've provided in the pews and chairs around you, page 1071, James chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at just a few verses this morning, verses 12 to verses 18. Now, if you're not familiar with using a Bible, the big number on the page is the chapter number, chapter one, the small numbers are the verse numbers. We're looking at verses 12 to 18, and you're going to be helped by just keeping your Bible open as we go through this, because I'm going to be referring back to the text over and over again. As you're turning there, let me just orient you a little bit. James, we're, we're right here at the beginning of the letter, and in the verses right before, James has been encouraging these Christians to, to remain loyal to God, to endure these trials that they're experiencing. Remember, they've been scattered by persecution. They're basically refugees. They're starting over in all these other places. And he's asking them to, to endure all of that so that they will be found mature on the last day. But, but some of them at this moment are feeling deceived. You know, this Christianity thing is new. Uh, they are relatively new Christians, and, and they, they heard the message, and they signed up, and yet their experience is a little bit like, like you, when, when you thought you were signing up for a 5K, and you show up only to discover it's a marathon, and you can't back out. Yeah, that, that's, that's the way some of these folks are feeling at this moment. It actually doesn't feel fair to them that they're being persecuted for putting their faith in God. And some of them, at least, are beginning to blame God. And in response, James 
wants to correct them, but he also wants to encourage them. And he wants to do that for us too. here's, Here's his argument. Don't blame God because he's given you everything you need to finish the race. Don't blame God. There's the correction. He has given you everything you need to finish the race. There's the encouragement. Now, James says something really different in our passage, something kind of surprising. He's going to talk about this race, only he's going to start at the finish line and trace the race backwards. So we're going to do the same thing. We're just going to follow James as we look at this race that God's giving us everything that we need to finish it. And we're going, to, we're going to trace the race backwards. So we're going to start with the finish line. The finish line. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the one who endures trials. Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Well, there it is. There's, there's the finish line. James starts at the end. He says that God's approval... God's blessing, that's what a blessing is, God's approval is going to be given to to everyone who endures the trials, who who stand the test, whose faith does not fail, who, who continue to love God to the end and so reach the finish line. And and that approval that we get at the end is not just a attaboy, well done. No, James, and I hope you notice this about James, he's he's a preacher, he's like full of illustrations. Like you can't go like more than one verse before you're stumbling over another image or illustration. He, he actually draws a, an illustration from the imagery of the Olympic Games. He, he refers to the victor's wreath, a, a crown. Now, the, the crown that you got if you won the Olympics was a crown of laurel. It, it was given to the, the winner of, of the big race. But, but here at the end of the race of life, James says, those who endure, those those who make it to the end in faith and in love for God, they get a much better crown, not a crown of laurel that's just going to fade after a few weeks. They get the crown of life itself. You see that there in verse 12. He will receive the crown of life. It's the the same imagery that that John uses in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. Where, where Jesus says, be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. The, the, the reward for persevering in faith in Jesus is eternal life. Now, now what's that? Eternal life is not just a long life. It's not this life that never ends. That would not be a reward. No, it's the life of heaven itself. It's a a whole different quality of life. It's it's life as God intended it to be. And as James notes, this this reward is given to those who who persevere in faith. And what does it mean to persevere in faith? Well, he says there at the end of verse 12 that this is promised to those who love him. Persevering in faith isn't like gritting your teeth real hard and trying and trying and trying. No, persevering in faith means continuing to love God instead of all the other alternatives. Continuing to love God rather than your idols. Continuing to love God rather than yourself. Continuing to love God rather than whatever alternative presents itself. That's what it looks like to persevere. It's a perseverance in love. 
Now, some of you might be thinking, this is weird. This is Christianity we're talking about, and you're talking about like rewards? You're talking about prizes at the end? I thought, I thought this is all about grace. Well, well, no. I mean, think about it. No one enters a race without some sort of motivation, right? No, nobody just signs up to run a 5K or a marathon for the heck of it. No, they, 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 they want a prize. Now, even if you're not a contender, maybe the prize that you're running for is your own personal best, your, your own PR. Or, or, or maybe the prize you're running for is just like to prove that you can do it, that you can get to the end. But, but one way or another, something is motivating you to do this. What's the same with life? Life is a race. Only we're often confused about what kind of race it is. I think most of the time we walk through life thinking that we're, we're actually racing against each other. Who can do better? Who can do best? And, and that's all the bumper stickers out there. He who dies with the most toys wins. Well, think about it for a minute. Getting ahead cannot be what the race of life is all about. And the reason is quite simple. Death. Death gives the lie to the idea that this life is all about this life. I think of another bumper sticker out there. There are no U-Hauls on hearses right? The the goal of this life cannot be found in this life. The goal, the only thing that could motivate us in this life is the life that's beyond this life, eternal life, knowing God and and having his approval, enjoying his love. So so it's worth... just for a moment here, like reflecting as we think about the finish line, as James paints it, what, what prize are you living for? What, what, what motivates you to get out of bed in the morning? What, what motivates you to keep going day after day? Friend, do not try to live for something that's not going to last. Uh, particularly, Do not live now for something that's not going to outlast you. Because you, my friend, are eternal. I know your body's going to die. But you were made to live forever. And your soul is going to continue to live. Don't live for something that won't outlast you. The treasures of this world... They fade, they rust, they decay. We, we used to have a, a trophy case down in the basement of this church because a long time ago we had lots of teams, you know, softball teams and flag football teams and basketball teams, various teams, and they won trophies, and they're all down in that trophy case downstairs in the basement. I don't think it's there anymore. Is that right, Mark? Uh, I don't know if he's here. I think it's, I think it's gone. Um, you know why it's gone? There, there's, there's hardly anyone here left that remembers anybody that was on those teams. There's, there's hardly anyone here left who was on a team that won something. They, they, they're kind of useless. 
Only God is worth our lives. Only God is a a prize that is big enough, that's that's worthy of your life. Anything, living for anything less is simply going to make you smaller. It's going to dehumanize you and demean you. I mean, think about the person who lives for money. The person who lives for money so often becomes stingy because they're holding on to all of it, and they become smaller. Or, or, or the, the person who's living for approval and the praise of men, don't they so often just become insecure and kind of petty and less? Or, or, or the person who, who's only living for pleasure and, and, and the next hit of pleasure, and, and don't they become kind of thin and shallow? because it's all about just looking for the next jolt of pleasure. No, friends, do not live for something that is less than God. Because living for anything that is less than God is going to fail you. It's going to disappoint you. It's going to make you smaller in this life. Oh, and it is not going to be there for you in the next The prize to live for is the prize of eternal life. And that prize, James tells us, is won through a genuine, tested, proven faith in Jesus Christ. It is faith that brings us to Christ. It is faith that attaches us to Christ. And and that faith, as James has been saying really since verse 2, is, is a faith that if, if we're going to understand is a genuine faith, is real saving faith, is, is proven, it's tested. So, so how is faith tested? Well, how is a spouse's love for their spouse proven? How, how is an athlete's training proven? Well, it's by persevering to the end. Right? It's by, it's by entering into the race or the contest and getting to the end. Our confession of faith here at Hinson Baptist Church describes perseverance as the chief or distinguishing mark of genuine faith. Th- this is what sets real faith apart from false faith, spurious faith, temporary faith. The only way faith is proven is is if it perseveres. The only way perseverance is proven is if it's tested. That which is not tested is not known. I mean, think about elementary school teachers who labor to get basic math concepts into their young pupils' heads. Now, I guarantee you that every one of those fourth or fifth graders who walks out of math class will assure you that, oh, I know it. I know it. Because they don't want to have to listen to it anymore. So they'll tell you, I know it. They, They don't know they know it. And the teacher doesn't know they know it until they've been tested on it and prove that they know it. Well, it's the same with faith and perseverance. 
The, the, the trials that we encounter are, are, are testing our faith. And, and in, until it's tested, well, we, we don't really know for sure, do we? The trials that we encounter show what is really inside of us. And that leads us, second, to the race course. The race course. Look at verse 13. No one undergoing a trial should say, I'm being tempted by God. Since God is not tempted by evil and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he's drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. So it turns out that, that this, the, the race course of life is actually an obstacle course. It's, um, it's one of my favorite, I don't even know if they do this anymore. It's one of my favorite events from the Olympics. It's the steeplechase, not uh, the 100-yard the dash, right, or the 100-meter sprint. You know what the steeplechase is? That the steeplechase is that longer race, and they've got all sorts of obstacles in front of the runners. They got to jump over stuff, and they got to jump over pits of water or land in the pit of water and run through it. And it looks absolutely miserable, but it's so much fun to watch. Uh, that's kind of life, right? Life is a steeplechase, an obstacle course. Like all sorts of trials come along, they're thrown up in our path. Trials that, that cause us to, to struggle like those runners. Trials that cause us to stumble and even fall down like those runners. Trials that discourage us. Trials that cause us to doubt. Trials that cause some people to drop out of the race altogether. And when it gets to that point, it's, it's really tempting to take a look at your life and then take a look up to God and blame the designer of the course rather than the runner of the course. It, it, it's, it's really tempting to say, God, you have made this race too hard. That, that's what's going on there in verse 13. When God sends these trials, some of these folks are saying, I'm being tempted by God. It's, it's God's fault. Now, James rules that out from the start. And he bases it on the very nature of God. He says, don't say I'm being tempted by God since God isn't tempted by evil, and therefore God doesn't tempt anyone. Well, why isn't God tempted by evil? Well, it's not because he's naive and doesn't know about evil. And, and it's not because God's like stoic and has no desires or feelings. No, no, it's because God is good. God is perfectly good. There is nothing in him that corresponds to anything that we might call a temptation. There, there is, there's nothing in him that, that would desire anything that we would call a temptation. It, it's sort of like, um, uh, and my kids know about this, this about me. Um, 
you could put a bowl of candy on the counter and a bowl of chips on the counter. I will walk by the bowl of candy like basically every day and not care. It just doesn't appeal. There's nothing in me that corresponds to the bowl of candy. Ooh, but those chips, I've actually asked my wife not to bring them home because <laughs> I almost can't resist them, as my son pointed out to me just the other day. Well, this, this is God. There's, there's nothing in the bowl of candy that, that corresponds to him. There's like nothing in him that desires what that temptation is offering. He is good. And since there's nothing in him, since there's no evil in him, since he only desires what is right and what is best, he doesn't tempt anyone. You, you know, think about what a temptation is. A, a, a temptation by definition to tempt by definition, is to try to lure someone away from what is best and right. Well, there's nothing in God that wants to lure you away from what is best and right. No, if, if we're tempted to sin in the midst of trials, that comes from us. That doesn't come from God. James actually uses the imagery of a fishing lure, the, the, the word that he uses there in verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is drawn away. It's, it's this image of being lured, like by, by a fishing lure. Some of you are fishermen. You know how a lure works. A lure hides a hook inside something that's very desirable, something that looks like food to the fish. Now, the fish is out there, and if the fish is hungry, if the fish desires food, man, he sees that lure, and he takes it to his great regret because there's a hook hidden inside. Friends, this is what happens with us. It's not God who's tempting us. No, it's our, it's our own evil desires within us that we came hardwired with. We came by them naturally. And those desires lure us. And so when the, the right kind of external temptation comes along, we bite. How is it that trials provide the, that, that occasion for our own desires to lure us into sin? Well, think about whatever trial you're going through right now. Just get it firmly in mind. What, what's the trial that you are most like intensely facing at the moment? You got it? Are you tempted to serve yourself in that trial? I bet you are. Th think about the trial that you went through and, and it didn't go well. Maybe you, f you failed in that trial or it, it didn't turn out the way you wanted. Weren't you tempted in that moment to gratify yourself? So disappointed by what the trial was? that after the fact now you come along to soothe yourself, maybe one drink too many, maybe a show you know you shouldn't watch, something that gratifies yourself because you are so disappointed by what happened in that trial. When trials come, it provides an occasion for us to turn inward, 
to serve ourselves, to gratify ourselves. When trials come, it provides an occasion for us to look to an idol to help us. And we like idols better than turning to God to help us because idols are a way for us to help ourselves, and we like to help ourselves. When trials come, we're tempted to use other people to help ourselves through that trial, maybe even throw people under the bus. No matter the trial, our nature Our fallen sinful human nature is going to use that trial to draw us away from God and toward self. It's going to use that occasion to draw us away from his wisdom and to our wisdom, away from dependence on him and to independence, away from loving others and to loving self instead. And all you need to do is think about your most recent trial and your response to it to see that. Friends, don't blame God for your sin. Your sin is all your own. It's what comes naturally to you. And that's where James starts in his answer to don't blame God. But being lured towards sin is, is just the first step. And James decides to like mix his images and his metaphors. So in verse 15, he shifts from fishing to describe the life cycle of sin. He says, then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. So desire and temptation get together like a husband and wife and decide to have a baby. And they conceive a baby. And they give birth to that baby, and that baby's name is sin. The desire comes, and we act on the desire, and now sin is born. Now, of course, what we ought to do as soon as sin is born is murder it in the crib. I know, it's a shocking image, but that's what we should do. We should literally commit infanticide against that sin, newborn sin. But no, no, we're good parents. And so we, we cherish the little sin. We, we feed it a little bit. We coddle it. It begins to grow up a little bit. We begin to dress it up in nice, respectable clothes. And we begin to convince ourselves that, oh, isn't this, it's a harmless little sin. It, 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 it kind of brings me some pleasure. I, I, I enjoy its company. I, I'm sure that... I can raise it in such a way that it'll obey me. It'll serve me. It won't hurt me. But we deceive ourselves. We think we've tamed it. But sin grows up and has a child of its own and names it death. Our death, not its death. It's not really a life cycle that James is describing here. It's a death cycle. And it's what led the the great Puritan theologian, John Owen, to, to, to write very pithily, very famously, very compellingly, Christian, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Friends, it's sin 
unrepentant sin, a a, a rebellion against God and his ways that that is cherished and, and coddled, that keeps anyone from finishing the race and winning the crown of life. It's sin that keeps them from this. You know, all all sorts of people enter races. I'm sure you've noticed this. All sorts of people enter races. Fast people, slow people. Fat people, skinny people. All sorts of people enter races. And you know what? All sorts of people finish races. All those that entered. All those same kind of people, they, they, they finish them. You know who never enters a race? You know who never finishes a race? Dead people. They don't. Dead people are the one sort of people that never finish races. This is what sin does to us. This is what sin has already done to you. Because of sin, you're already out of the race before it even begins. I I mean, can you imagine the coach of the Oregon track team going to the local morgue to recruit members for his team? Can, Can you imagine what it would look like if he took their silence as agreement? And so he pulls them out and the day of the big race, he, you know, he, he, he lines them up on the starting line and the gun goes off. I mean, what happens? I won't demonstrate, but I mean, they just fall, right? I mean, it doesn't even, there is no race because they're dead. Friends, that's you and your sin. You think you're running the race towards God. You, you, you think you're doing pretty well. You look to your left and your right, and you realize, okay, I'm not doing as good as some people, but I'm doing a lot better than that guy back there. But what you don't realize is you're just one corpse, kind of like looking at other corpses. Like, no, you're not even in the race. Christian. We're going to talk about how and why you're in the race in a moment. But the reality is, Sin remains in your life. Don't play with it. Don't don't play with your sin. Don't don't toy with your sin. Your sin, even as, as as a redeemed Christian, your sin has only one life cycle, only one directional movement, only one tendency, and that tendency is death. Sin will not be managed. Sin sin will not be controlled. Left to itself, it grows up and it gives birth to death every time. Bodily death, spiritual death, eternal death. Christian, be killing your sin or it will be killing you. How do you do that? James doesn't really talk about it here, but let me just encourage you. Like, what do the scriptures say? Confess your sins to one another. Don't hide your sin. 
We hide our sin so we can cherish it and coddle it. No, no, confess your sin to one another. Sin dies in daylight. Drag it out into the light. Be willing to embarrass yourself, not with everybody in this room, but some people who love you and that you know you can trust in this church can also hold you accountable and confess your sin to them. Cut off every opportunity to feed the sin, right? I described sin earlier to like a little baby. And the reality is so many of the sins in our lives, they're still a matter of real struggle for us because we keep feeding it. Oh, we don't want to do it, but we haven't cut off all the opportunities that it has to raid the pantry, right? Cut it off. Give it no oxygen. Give it no opportunity. Be killing sin in your life, or it will be killing you. Now, here's the thing, of course. If, if all of us are already dead, how do any of us even start the race, Must, much less finish it and receive this prize that James is talking about in verse 12? Well, that leads us third and finally to the starting line, the starting line. Look at verse 16. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. All right, so James is telling these early Christians not to deceive themselves about the race that they're in. It may feel like an obstacle course. It may feel like God is tempting them to sin, but no, every gift that God has ever given them or us is both good, because he's good, and perfect, because he's perfect. You see that there in verse 17. That that word perfect, it's actually the same word that he used back up in verse 4 of mature. Same word. So so James is saying to us as as believers, we should view these trials that come along in the obstacle course that is the race of life. We should view these trials not as excuses to sin, but as good gifts, as as opportunities to, to bring our faith to maturity, to perfection. I mean, here's the thing. God knows what we need to reach the finish line. And God is a really good designer of this race course. And he's also a really good father and a really good coach. And you can use whatever analogy or image you want, but he is always right there giving us exactly what we need when we need it. That baby that won't sleep, a good gift from God. That that boss who's never pleased, a gift from God who knows exactly what you need when you need it. That extra weight that you're carrying around that you can't seem to get rid of, that God knows what you need. That diagnosis that came and you don't know what to do about it. Yeah, even that a good gift from God who knows exactly what you need when you need it. 
We like to think of God's gifts as all the blessings in our lives, but James is trying to change our attitude, our our perspective on this race that we're running. And he's saying, no, 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 even the trials, the trials are good gifts. Because whatever the trial is you're facing at this moment, and even all of the trials all put together, they're going to do one of two things. They're either going to prove that we never had faith to begin with because they tested our faith and found it lacking or they're going to prove that our faith is genuine by strengthening us and refining us along the way. Now, that's a big claim for trials, because I know some of the trials that some of you are going through. It is a really kind of outrageous, and for some of you at this moment, maybe even offensive claim to say that that trial is a good and perfect gift from God. How can I make that claim? How can James make that claim? Well, James tells us there in verse 17, the proof is that God never changes. Do you see that? That all of these good and perfect gifts, including all these trials, come down from the Father of lights who does not change like shifting shadows. God is not like us. He's not fickle. He's not inconstant. He is, to use a big theology word, immutable. What he was yesterday, he is today, and he will be tomorrow. And ever thus was it always in both directions forever. God does not change. Uh, James compares him to light, which is always and only light and never darkness. Now, things might get in the way of the light, so it looks like it's flickering, but actually the light's not flickering. Our perception of it is. No, light is just what it is. It's just light. It's always light. It's never anything else. And so, James wants us to consider the first gift that he gave us. Because if that gift were good, if that first gift he gave you was a good gift, then because God never changes, you can know for certain that every other gift after it is also good. What was the first gift? It was the gift of spiritual life. You see that there in verse 18, by his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. James uses now another uh, metaphor, drawing on the the idea of the first gift that, that any parent gives their child. And it's the gift of life. You know, I don't know about you, but I didn't choose to be born. Nobody asked me. No, life was just given to me. This is, this is what parents do. They, they get together and they decide to have a child. The child has no say in it. He just is given this gift of life, whether he wanted it or not, which doesn't even make sense because he wasn't even there to want or not want. No, no, it's, it's, it's all, life is all gift. It's just given. And so it is, James says, with God. It was spiritual life, the, the life of heaven, that, that, that crown of life that we've already looked at, that, that, that is the goal in verse 12. Well, James says, actually, by his choice, by God's choice, and through the word of truth, the gospel, God gives them at the very beginning the goal that they're running for. Spiritual life. 
The, the, the best gift of all. Have you ever heard of a race where you get the prize at the beginning? That's this race. And friends, this is the good news of the gospel. God, whom James has already described back earlier at the beginning of the letter as the giving God, has given us life. Not because we asked for it, not because we bleated and begged for it, not certainly because we earned it. No, it was by his own choice. He just gives it. And he did it by giving us his son. The eternal son of God, equal with the father in every way, took on flesh and became a man. And we're told in the book of Hebrews that Jesus was made like us in every way, even tempted like us in every way, except he didn't sin. And he didn't sin because he's not just any old man. No, he's the the God man. God and man in human form. In his humanity, conceived by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary without original sin. In his joined to divinity, helped in every way. That there was nothing in Jesus that desired the temptations that came his way. There was nothing in him that corresponded to those temptations. And so he endured every test he faced, including that last one. When in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed, Father, if it's your will, take this cup away from me, but not my will, but your will be done. And so he went to the cross. And on that cross, he offered his life for our lives. He stood in our place, facing God's wrath for us. I mean, think about it for a moment. Because Jesus is God, the creator of all, your creator, the one who gave you the life that you have right now, died your death. And then was raised from the dead to give you a life that you so desperately need. But only he has to give. Oh, and he is happy to give it. By his death. He broke our death cycle. And in his life, he begins a a new life cycle for us and within us, a spiritual life cycle. So the the question isn't, how are you going to finish the race? The question isn't, where are you going to place? The question isn't, like, how are you doing along the way? No, No, the question, the first question has to be, are you alive? Are you even alive? Have you received the new birth? Have you heard the word of truth? You can't finish the race if you don't start the race, and you can't start the race unless you're alive. And you say, but Michael, James says it's by God's choice. Has God done this for you? It's his choice, after all, not ours. I want to encourage you, if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, stop worrying about whether or not God has chosen you. Don't worry about whether or not God is going to choose to give you this life. Prove that he has. Demonstrate that he has by turning away from your sin. 
by repenting of your sin and believing in him because this is what spiritual life does naturally. Some of you all will have seen those videos where a newborn baby is just placed on the, the, the mother's chest and the baby does not need to be coached. The baby knows where to go because this is what life does, right? Life quite naturally turns to the mother, to the father for more life. This is what spiritual life does. It quite naturally turns to the father and trusts him. Friend, do that today. Do that right now. Do that right where you're sitting. There's nothing more that needs to be done. You've heard the word of truth. Turn to your father. Put your trust in him and prove that he has made you alive that he's gotten you started on that race that actually only has one finish line. And it's the finish line of eternal life. Christian, if God has already given you that first gift of life, you can be sure since God never changes that everything else he gives you in this life, even trials, are for your good. They're for your life. They're for your perseverance. God, God's gift to us is not just like spiritual birth and then say, all right, see you, kid. I hope you make it. No. No, as, as James points out there in, in verse 17, like, like at every step of the race, God is there to give us more gifts so that we actually finish the race. I mean, you think about like those marathons or those ultra marathons where they've set up tables, you know, with, with water and, and, and snacks to, to nourish the runners as they keep going. I mean, that's God, except only so much better because he's like running right there beside you. And every step of the way, he's giving you everything you need to take that next step. Only the spiritually living finish the race because only the spiritual living even start the race. But Christian, the good news is that all the spiritually living finish the race. All of them. Because God gives us every good gift that we need to keep going and reach the finish line. God made you alive by the word of truth. So Christian, keep listening to that word. If it was a word that can make you alive, it is certainly a word that can continue to sustain you and strengthen you, to guide you along the way. Don't turn your ears away from that word. Keep running the race. And, 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 and if you're running into obstacles and they, they seem to you like God being angry at you or neglecting you or not caring about you, then basically you're like one of those cross-country skiers who, who's got goggles on and the goggles have gotten all clouded with snow and you need a new pair of goggles and James has given them to you here. You need a new perspective on what you're seeing out there. Every trial that comes your way is an opportunity to prove that you're alive. Every trial that, that comes your way is, is like God the, being, being like the, the perfect, encouraging personal trainer who's designed that trial, that workout just for you so that you can keep going even stronger to finish. 
God is the best gift giver. He's like the best personal shopper any of us ever had. He knows exactly what you need when you need it. He knows where to get it. He knows how to get it to you. And he never fails. That's the perspective that you need to bring to your life this week. Giving you just what you needed when you needed it so that the life he gave you at the first continues to grow into maturity, tested and proved, worthy to receive the crown of life at the end. You can tell a lot about the character of a person when they lose. You can also tell a lot about a person when they win the race as well. The the entitled winner, nobody wants to listen to that person because we know they've just deceived themselves. No, it's, it's the gracious winner that we want to hear because what does the gracious winner do? The gracious winner doesn't point to themselves. They, they, they're like falling all over themselves to thank everyone that helped them achieve that victory. The, the, the news story that went viral recently was the actress who, who won an Emmy and she is thanking everybody. And then she stopped and said, and particularly I want to thank the assistants the assistance of my manager and the assistance of my casting people. And the, because you're the one like, who answered the emails. And the place erupted in applause. Yeah, that's, that's the gracious winner, right? Who knows they only got where they got because of all the help that they received. Well, so it is in the race of life. If we don't finish the race, we can't blame God. The fault is our own. Oh, but if we do finish the race, if we receive the crown of life, boy, when we're we're standing there kind of accepting the award, right? we're not going to claim any credit because God gave us everything we needed from first to last to get there. We may get a crown, but he gets the praise. We may get life, but he gets all the love, right? We may get that award that has been motivating us, but he gets all the applause. That's what James is talking about there in that last phrase. God gives us all of this so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Why does God give us gifts? So that we could be a gift back to him. That's what the first fruits were. They were offerings of praise back to God at the beginning of the harvest because God had abundantly blessed Israel. And that's what a Christian is. Not a winner, though we get the crown, but an offering, a trophy, God's trophy of grace. The amazing thing about this whole story of this race is that the prize we get at the very end is God. But God gets this prize as well. One he's been eagerly awaiting. And Christian, it's you. It's all of us who endure the trials and run the race 
in order to run into his arms of love. Now, doesn't that sound like a race you'd want to run in? Is there any other sort of race that's worth winning? Yeah, I didn't think so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that we view our lives incorrectly. We look at the things that we suffer, we look at the trials that we face, and we blame you, we become embittered toward you. We fail to see the way in which you are using trials, even now, to bring us to you. The way that you're using trials even now to, to, to strengthen our faith, having already come to you. Well, we pray that you would help us to see ourselves and our lives correctly. That we might indeed run this race. And at the end, find that you deserve all the praise. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.